welcome to MonarchCast. We were talking Amateur History Hour. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And today we're continuing the reign of Henry VIII with the end of Anne Boleyn and the ascent of quite a few others. Three more wives after that. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot to cover. He, he had a lot of wives, guys, so we're going to jam a few of them in. He had about as many wives as Elizabeth Taylor had husbands. I think she has him beat, but only by a few. So. Well, she married one guy at least, one guy twice. So. That's true. I think they both have the distinction of having more husbands and or spouses, I should say, than you have fingers on one hand. So you have to use the left, the next hand to start <laughs> counting. I think that's that's a pretty big achievement. And if she kept all her rings, that would get pretty crowded. Oh, I'm sure she did. Yeah. I don't see her giving up jewelry. Um, but this is about Henry VIII. So, yes, we're we're getting into some some tyrannical behavior in today's hour. I like that you said amateur history hour as if this is going to be just an hour. I think that's optimistic. Well, we aim for optimism. <laughs> yeah. We know these are long, but there's so much to talk about with this guy. There's politics and relationships it's like a big soap opera how could you not just keep going and going and going so we hope you guys are enjoying it because this is part three so there's one more to come after this um but before we get going should we do a little royal oops is it an oops i don't know if it's an oops maybe a clarification a clarification um so in the last episode we had talked about when charles v became the Holy Roman Emperor, and I think this was an Ali's actually really good summary of what the Holy Roman Empire was at that point, but we talked about whether or not Henry VIII would ever have been considered for the role, and it turns out he was actually briefly considered. So who was the first guy, Ali? Frederick III? Frederick of Saxony. Yes, so he, that's who they wanted, and he turned it down. And, then and he would have been continuing this ger- this tradition of having a German noble in the office of Holy Roman Emperor. And then after he turns it down, you're left with Charles and Francis, who is Francis I of France. And what did you say? They were just bribing everybody left and right? Yeah, they basically were in a war of bribes with each other over who could influence the outcome of this election. And this made the nobles a little bit nervous, so they briefly considered a third option. Which would have been Henry VIII. Yeah, but, but he didn't really have the money or the influence to compete on this kind of stage. So I don't think he was ever truly a serious contender. And arguably, I don't know if France would have either because the reign of Charles was just, he was at war constantly and that gets expensive. Yeah, I think for Francis it was more of an idea that he could reclaim some historically French lands in the bargain. Um, but ultimately, I think Charles proved to, one, have the family connections. And obviously, as we mentioned last time, just the purely geographical advantage. I mean, he sat on most of the thrones of Europe at this point. So who are they going to be to say no to this guy? So. So just for you sticklers out there, we wanted to throw that clarification out there in case anybody was listening and rolling their eyes and saying, that's not right. I'm sure right. I mean, I had this idea that it would be unlikely for Henry just because he didn't have a historical familial claim to it. Um, but it's true that this was an elected position. So in theory, 
they could have gone a different way. Right. So that's all we've got. If there's anything else in the last episode that we got wrong, feel free to tell us. We know it was long, so hope you all made it through to the end. Um, But if there's any glaring oops, as always, we'd like to hear about them. And I have just a little bit of royal gossip that I think is really fun. Yeah, this was entertaining. (laughs) So I don't know if anybody out there heard. This past week, there was a little bit of a heist that occurred. Um, The Swedish jewels. Now, these are not the crown jewels of Sweden, but they are jewels owned by the crown. Specifically, it was, I think, a golden orb and then a crown and maybe another crown or a scepter. Uh, that belonged to some Swedish monarch in the distant past. And they were on display in a cathedral. They were lifted out of the cathedral by thieves. And by lift, I mean they just they stole them. I don't know the actual mechanics It wasn't like a true lifting as in like yeah. Mission Impossible. <laughs> right. And then the best part is that they just kind of ran out. Of course, they must have set off alarms, but they ran to a speedboat on this lake and just disappeared and they they have not found a trace of them yet but what's interesting about this is I can't think how you would get rid of them you wouldn't I mean this is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard like it's like when people steal fine art it once you once you've stolen it and it's in your possession it's essentially worthless because you can never sell it but I think there are people out there that I understand if you're going to steal a day goth or something, you know, you might just want it because you just want to look at it and have that thrill of having the original. But this is just like the crown of Sweden. How many people out there would want this for funsies? You know, I think the idea is that you'd sell it and get some money. So then I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the horrible part is that the only way you could make money off of it is to pick all the pearls and jewels off of it and then melt on the gold. And that's terrible. Yeah. I mean, that could happen. Or, I think they'll or, find them. Yeah, they'll but, just find it in a dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody tried to return it. It's amazing know. that they were able to get away, though. But from my understanding, this lake has a bunch of little islands on it. And so they just managed to disappear onto one of these islands and wait it out. But how do you hide the boat? Well, that's what I don't get. And also, now that people are looking, aren't you stuck? Right. Oh, well... We got to get those Swedes on the case. I don't even know what their police force looks like. Speaking of the Swedish royal family, I think a few of them are moving to the U.S. I saw that. Yeah. Well, now they don't need crowns, so, you know, they (laughs) got to get a real job. Time to retire to Florida. (laughs) All right. So that's, that's just a fun little story. If anybody has an update, you know, feel free to share. It's, it's, could be a movie. Hopefully it will be a movie. Maybe it'll be the next Ocean's Eleven. Um, Ocean's in Ocean's... Wait, not Ocean's Eight. Ocean's Nine. (laughs) (laughs) Ocean's the Lake. Yep. All right, so let's get going because we've got so much to cover. But where we left off, and hopefully you've listened to the intro, part one and part two, uh, we left off with The King's Great Matter, and it's finally been resolved. So that's great news for Henry. Henry and Anne are married, and they embark on a truly happy marriage. Right. Did they? Yeah, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> that did not happen. So, <laughs> 
Once Henry and Anne are married and she's crowned queen, all should have been fine, as this was exactly what Henry wanted all along. Unfortunately, this is a case of be careful what you wish for and reality played out just a little bit differently. So there were a lot of factors at play and I think we can talk about first the idea that Henry couldn't have her for years and years and years. So she became this unattainable prize. And then once he got her, I think the reality was maybe a little less than he had envisioned. So first of all, you have to remember everything that he just went through he, to set his wife aside. And as a result, Anne was quite unpopular. Throughout the long wait, she had made many, many enemies, and that's not just in the clergy who weren't happy with Henry declaring himself as the head of the church, nor with Catherine's supporters who obviously weren't happy to see their queen set aside, but by this point she's also starting to make enemies in her own camp. So, for example, her own uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, really didn't like her and he hated how she treated the king. Apparently she would reduce Henry to tears. She was so mean to him. And she also alienated the Duke of Suffolk, who I don't know if we've talked about him a lot, but he was not only one of the king's best friends, but he's also married to Mary Tudor, who is Henry's sister. So he's he's a big player in the on the board. And on top of that, the common people just thought she was a whore. And the rest of Europe treated the marriage like a joke. Um, on top of that, you see advisors who'd been around forever, such as Thomas More, resigning. Thomas More resigned as Lord Chancellor. Uh, he couldn't support Henry's reforms in the church, and also he just wanted nothing to do with Anne Boleyn. So, well, then he died, and then he died. Well, did well? Henry I mean, kill he him? was he was beheaded. Yeah, he don't. Yeah, because Henry, he couldn't support Henry's reforms yeah. in the church, and Henry wasn't having that. Yeah. But, you know, Henry's got this wife he wanted, but everyone else is kind of giving him the side eye, like, is this really going to work out? On top of that, um, and, and, and remember, Europe has been monitoring this situation quite closely, and I think none of them could really believe that Henry actually went through with it and married a new wife. And I think in their mind, she was just kind of a nobody, you know? No, and Charles is still pissed because, like, his oh, yeah. aunt has been thrown over. Yeah. So once Henry and Anne finally consummated their relationship, everything seemed fine at first. Uh, you know, she quickly became pregnant, and Henry didn't immediately tire of her as might have been expected. He also, going back to this idea we talked about last time of her being raised in the French court and this idea of how virtuous could she actually be having grown up in that court, Henry did actually make a comment that she had been, quote, corrupted in France. So despite her insistence on maintaining her chastity for six years, I think he starts to get a little suspicious that maybe he's been played. Um, he didn't mind at the time. She's pregnant with his long-awaited son. Everything's fine, but just put a pin in that because this is later going to add to the pile of wrongs he claimed that she committed. So for now, it seems Anne has won. She's got everything Henry promised her, and she only had one job to do at this point. She had to give him a son and heir. Henry was 42 years old. And he needed to ensure the succession, as we talked about before. He also needed a son to justify the great matter and the links that he went to in order to get rid of Catherine. Because I think if Anne had given birth to a son, a lot of people might have just looked at the, in, you know, ensuring the succession as maybe worth the cost. Well, and um, also because, again, they don't understand biology, if Henry and Anne have a son, then that's 
God's blessing on the marriage, right? So he's from on high pronouncing everything that they've done to get to this point as okay, because otherwise he wouldn't have given them a son. Right. So like I said, everything starts out okay, but very, very quickly for Henry, at least the bloom was off the rose. All of the qualities that he liked in a mistress didn't fit in the role of wife. He admired Anne's spirit when she was his mistress, and he had his own wife to boss around and get mad at if she wasn't going along with his plan, but now that Anne's his wife, he's expecting her to get in line. But Anne didn't have it in her to be meek and quiet, and unsurprisingly, Henry is constantly comparing her to her predecessor. Uh, For one instance, he continues his pattern of being unfaithful. Um, And Anne, not being raised to be a queen and be raised to shut her eyes to such things, didn't turn a blind eye like Catherine did. Um, Henry told her to shut her eyes and endure like more worthy persons. He went on to warn her that he could humble her lower than he had raised her. So he's already reminding her, I made you, I can unmake you, and you better get in line. This isn't really sitting well and not boding well for a successful marriage. At the time, none of this was of particular importance, however, because this long-awaited son was on the way. So on September 7th, 1533, Anne went into labor. Henry was excitedly expecting his promised prince, but Anne gave birth to a girl. Oops. Yeah. Henry and Anne were disappointed, but they did take comfort in the fact that the girl was healthy. And so they named her Elizabeth. Ding, 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 ding. That's after Henry's mother, right? And I think it's after Anne's mother. I think her mother. Oh, that's right. Her mother was named Elizabeth as well. Yeah. But let's keep our eye on Elizabeth's daughter of Anne Boleyn. She's going to play it apart one day. But um, in any case, Henry was confident the boys would follow. So, you know, he reminded Anne, it's fine. I'm glad you had a healthy girl. We'll have many sons down the road. The reaction in Europe, however, was not kind. Everyone saw it as a sign that God had abandoned Henry. And Henry puts on a brave face, but he's not happy with this turn of events. He's in the exact place he had been with Catherine. No sons and a female heir. Because you have to remember Mary's been declared a bastard. So Elizabeth is essentially taking her place and Henry's just in just as bad of a position as he was two years ago. Right, Um, it's like nine years and all of this like drama for essentially the same outcome. Right. If if, if he knew that was going to happen, he could have just stayed married to Catherine. And on top of that, he's stuck with a wife who won't get in line and just shut up. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sadly, that's that's what we were expected to do. Um, so immediately after the birth of Elizabeth, rumors begin to swirl that Henry's going to put Anne aside. They hadn't even been married for a year at this point. But, you know, life goes on and Anne was pregnant again soon after. So for the time being, Henry seemed somewhat content with the marriage. You know, he bestowed the honor of naming, naming Anne to be regent in the event that he couldn't rule. This is also when you see Parliament passing the first act of succession from his reign, which officially placed the children of Henry and Anne in line for the throne. Um, This is the act that also required the subject, Henry's subjects, the people of England, to swear an oath that they acknowledge the act and its contents, which included recognizing Henry as the head of the church. So he's made this official. 
Thomas Cromwell, we talked about him a little bit at the end of the last episode. He's the one who helped orchestrate the break with Rome once that became the final nuclear option. And he gets promoted to Secretary of the King, advising Henry on policy and dealing with those who resisted the new way of things. So he's trotted out and gone after those. Mostly nobles were the ones that were required to swear this oath. And Thomas Cromwell is the one who has to go out and get them to actually do it. One of those people that they go and try to get to swear this oath is Catherine of Aragon. She's still around. She's still a problem. Before Anne and Henry had married, Catherine had essentially been banished from court. She's kept in increasingly poor conditions. And again, for Catherine, that's a relative term. But by all accounts, they just kept moving her to worse and worse houses. You know, I think the house she finally died in barely had heat. And it was just damp and really, really poor conditions for a woman of her age. She had to surrender all the jewels traditionally worn by the queen consort, and Anne took every opportunity to hum humiliate her and put her in her place and remind her that she was no longer the queen. So when Catherine was informed that Henry had married Anne and that Anne was pregnant, she was also told that she would be referred to from now on as the Dowager Duchess of Wales, because you have to remember that Catherine was first married to Arthur, who was the Prince of Wales. So as his widow, Catherine has the right to be referred to as the Dowager Duchess. That's actually not a bad title, but when you've been Queen of England, it's quite a downgrade. So for the rest of her life, she continued to refer to herself as the Queen of England. And I um, love the story of when they presented her with, you know, this document that she was supposed to sign avowing that, you know, Anne was queen and she was the Dowager Duchess. She crossed out every instance that referred to her as the Dowager Duchess of Wales and, like, wrote queen. I mean. <laughs> over it. At that point, she had nothing left to lose. So yeah. I, I really admire her for being like, uh, no, excuse me. Still the queen over here. As you mentioned earlier, her nephew Charles was infuriated by the whole situation. But unfortunately for Charles, and we mentioned this at the beginning, about his reign being plagued by several wars, he's too busy fighting the Turks and maybe, was it the Germans or someone? He, he's got a couple wars going on, so he's not in a position to go to the war Italians. with The Italians? The Italians, maybe. So he can't go to war with England and you know, put Henry in his place. He's kind of like, oh, that sucks. I don't support this, but I, I can't do anything about it. Um, when Princess Mary is informed that her mother is no longer queen, she announces that she would accept no queen but her mother. And in response, she was unfortunately never allowed to see her mother again. So they were kept apart for the rest of their lives. And that's really cruel of Henry, but kind of shows you how far he was willing to go at this point and how cruel he could be. Well, it sounds, it also, I just want to make note that that sounds, it is bad, but it sounds much worse than it actually was considering the amount of time Catherine lived beyond this. He, it's not like he kept them apart for 20 years, you know? Right. But More even like when two, she was dying, well, he wouldn't let her go see her, which is right. just awful. Um, well, and they had been separated during the divorce because he was hoping to use this as a pawn to convince Catherine to give in. Yeah. We, we're starting to see Henry VIII, the tyrant, emerge here. Also, I just want to point out that act of succession demoted, officially demoted the Princess Mary to the Lady Mary. So she's also got a downgrade in title, um, although I think at the time she was probably a little more concerned about her mother. 
also important to note at this time is that the Pope is still figuring out how to deal with the situation. He is not yet weighed in at this time. So from Henry's perspective, he's Keep done... with the times, Clement. Come I know, on. right? Henry says, I'm done with Rome. I'm moving on. But the emperor, Charles, is still trying to involve the Pope because he knows that that's the best hope for Catherine to get Henry to change his mind. So the Pope ultimately, finally, announces that Henry and Catherine's marriage was valid and ordered Henry to resume living with Catherine. If he refused, he'd be excommunicated. And Henry's also ordered, on top of all of that, to pay the costs of the court case, which I think is hilarious. And Henry's like, new phone, who dis? Exactly. He's like, Pope, hmm? I'm the head of the church. I don't, I, don't, I don't recognize your authority. So Catherine feels like she's finally vindicated, but Henry's saying, eh, he's got no authority in England. I've got a new wife. Big whoop. Catherine also, we mentioned this a little bit, refuses to swear Henry's oath, and that only provoked him further. So for the rest of her life, he just leaves her in the most deplorable of conditions. I think he would routinely send people to her to try to get her to swear this oath, and she just basically gave him a big middle finger, and that was that. Around this time, though, with all of this going on, so let's take a quick recap. Anne's had a baby girl. The Pope has excommunicated Henry. Charles V is pissed. He can't do anything about it now, but once he takes care of business on the continent, what's to stop him from coming after England? So Henry starts to think maybe all of this was a big mistake. Not necessarily leaving Catherine, but I think Anne starts to look like a mistake to him. She just couldn't compare to the grace of Catherine, who, by the way, was raised from birth to be the Queen Queen of England. And she's just too temperamental. She makes few friends, and on top of everything, she just hasn't produced a son. So we start to see a pattern emerge that's similar to Catherine. So Anne gives birth to a stillborn baby in June 1534. It was probably a girl since the sex was not recorded, and this was so soon after the birth of Elizabeth that Henry's just, he doesn't want to take the hit. In 1535, she had another miscarriage, and in 1536, she's again pregnant, but miscarries what was likely a boy. In fact, the emperor's ambassador, Shap, help me say this, Shapuis? I avoided saying his name at all costs. I think it's Shapuis. Yeah. I could be wrong. But he remarks that Anne has miscarried of her own savior, because it's very true that this last miscarriage marks the end of her marriage to Henry, effectively. And it's, again, this goes back to the lack of medical knowledge at the time. Anne was probably RH negative. Right. Meaning that once she had Elizabeth, she was unlikely to ever help carry a baby to term because if her babies were had the opposite RH positive protein or in, you know, I, I'm not a medical doctor, however that works. But the condition that she likely had made it unlikely that she would ever carry another healthy baby to term. And if that's true then she's an even worse choice for Queen from Henry's perspective. Right, no, exactly. Because he's just in the same position. And just like Catherine, Anne's influence diminishes with every failed pregnancy as this dream of a son comes for, goes further and further away. Around this time, we mentioned this a little bit in at the end of the last episode, but Henry continues to be unfaithful, and you start to see the nobles are literally 
throwing their daughters in the path of the king, hoping to gain an advantage. And that's not to say that they weren't doing that during Catherine's marriage. I mean, look at Mary when Mary Boleyn was the mistress of Henry, her father certainly profited. But what you start to see, it's not just that they're trying to get the benefits of having your daughter or your sister in the king's bed, but they're starting to think, and maybe, maybe she can be queen one day. You know, Henry's opened this can of worms and the nobles are starting to think, hey, there might be something here. But unfortunately, as long as Catherine is alive, Henry can't do anything about Anne because he would, if she, if she dies, he's just going to be, or he puts her aside, he's just going to be urged to return to Catherine and he didn't want to do that. Anne never felt secure as long as Catherine was alive, but the irony of that is that that was one of the things keeping Anne safe because when she did die, many felt that Henry would be free to remarry because they didn't see his marriage to Anne as valid. Mm-hmm. And in January of 1536, around the same time as Anne's last miscarriage, Catherine dies. And it's no coincidence that Anne's downfall happened in the same year. Yeah. So I want to take a little sidebar here and talk about the fact that while all of this personal drama is going on, and this has been about a year, year and a half since... It's been three years since Anne was... Married to Henry. Three years? Yep. They got, married, 15, in, the f- they got married in 1533. Okay. Yeah, you're right, because she's had all these miscarriages and mm-hmm. everything. Okay. Yeah. So while all of this is happening on the home front, uh, the church reforms that were kicked into motion by the divorce also continue at this time. So when Henry first broke with Rome, the Church of England was really essentially just the Catholic Church, but without the Pope. But what happened is his break opened the door to further reform, which was ardently supported by Anne. So the reformists are thinking, this is great. We've got a champion on the throne. But but contrary to some belief at the time, she's actually not a Lutheran. So she's not going that far. But she did want to see restraint on the power of the church. And I think a lot of this maybe comes from the fact that the Pope was such a thorn in her side for so many years. You know, she's known to encourage Henry to be lenient with heretics. Uh, This would later come back to haunt her as this gave ammunition to her enemies who told Henry she was a heretic. And Henry was not willing to tolerate that. Remember, he's religiously fanatic. And, And Henry, for his part, you know, he's not necessarily content to just declare himself the head of the church. He decides to also go after the corruption of the religious houses. And this is encouraged by Cromwell. So what they did is that they would go after the monasteries and the convents and they would close them down and they would seize their wealth and they would kick the nuns and the monks out onto the streets. And it wasn't like at this time it's unheard of to close a monastery or a convent, but Cromwell and Henry took it to another level and the whole idea was to take the wealth of the church for the crown. Um, This is ideal because let's remember Henry's been on a spending spree for the better part of 30 years and he spent the massive fortune left by Henry VIII, or sorry, Henry VII. And then this also, every time he closes down a monastery or a convent, allows him to further sever the allegiances to Rome. It's also really popular in the south of the country, as people were pretty resentful of the obvious wealth of the church and the religious houses. 
In the north of England, they were a little less happy. They tended to be more religiously conservative. And then also, you have to remember, these monks and nuns are being kicked out onto the street, and they have nowhere to go. So they turn to begging, and so the streets are just becoming really crowded with um, beggars, and, you know, obviously that probably leads to a little more crime, although I hate to think of the fact of, like, monks resorting to crime, but sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah, and it's... It's really interesting because, I mean, this is all an example of, like, Henry accidentally becomes a reformist, right? Like, he fully believes in the Catholic Church and, you know, most of his life, the Pope and everything. And then when it's no longer convenient for him to believe in all of this, he breaks and establishes himself as the head of his own church. But he 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 never stops and thinks about the impact of this right that he's opening the door that if the king can reform and break with rome then why can't the clergy and his subjects and other people who want to take it even further so like he's opened this whole can of worms there but then also especially with cromwell in his ear you know henry's not going to not take advantage of the situation right like he's already proven with wolsey that he can knock a cardinal from power and take his land and his wealth and so why can't he do that on a much larger scale right it's it's extremely cynical but it worked to his advantage yeah it it really is so all of this is to say that these religious reforms are still happening and the the ones out there that want reform they still support Anne because as i just mentioned even though she's not a lutheran she's known to support the reformist cause so her position in their eyes They've just, they've got the queen that they needed. That's what they want. But what I think that they mistook is that, as you just mentioned, Henry's kind of an accidental reformist. So he doesn't care about that. And unfortunately for Anne, her position is becoming ever more precarious. Henry at this point is openly dissatisfied and was even telling Cromwell that he believed she had seduced him by witchcraft and that he did not think his second marriage was really valid as evidenced by the continued lack of male heirs. So he's in the exact position as he was before considering his marriage to be childless. What did I say last time that Anne bewitched him? (laughs) Yeah, well... (laughs) <laughs> he he's starting to think the same thing so this is like typical right of men at this time where like something happens that doesn't reflect well on them and they're like well it was that woman she yeah. she just you know seduced me with her witchy powers right right because women are just witches at this point um, yeah I think we're past most of the medieval witch burnings at this point but obviously that idea is still there i don't think it's a good idea to be called a witch <laughs> not good at all so while henry's upset about all of this we see a really traumatic injury happen that some might argue really put him on the path to tyranny so in 1536 he fell from his horse in a jousting accident hit his head and opened up an old wound in his leg that would never heal from this point. And I've I've always wondered what this means because it's always referred to as an ulcer. And I... Oh, I know. Okay. So basically he had splinters of bone like in his leg. So it would heal and then this like cycle would start over where the splinters would start aggravating the muscle and then it would ulcerate and then it would swell and then it would drain with like all this pus and everything and then it would heal and then it would all start over. That sounds terrible. Yeah. 
I was thinking, like, couldn't he have just stuck his leg in a bucket of salt water? Clearly, no, that like, wouldn't have caused a problem. Surgery at this time wasn't obviously advanced enough to find microscopic fragments of bone. Oh, God, that sounds awful. They should have just cut it off. Well, that might have been worse. <laughs> might have killed him. So, so that's, He's actually that... really lucky that he didn't ever die from infection. Yeah, yeah. It was extremely painful most yes. likely and, and a lot of people think that that that's one of the reasons why he becomes such a tyrant at the end is because he's just in constant pain and it just really changes his personality but also some people say it could have been this head injury he was unconscious for hours and they thought he was gonna die and this so timing wise I'm kind of jumping around a little bit but when this happens Anne is pregnant with her in her final pregnancy and some people blame that miscarriage on this accident the stress of it she mm-hmm. certainly did the reason I bring it up is this is just the beginning of his path to physical infirmity and his temperament was never the same after this and as we talked about the, this could have been one of the cause or maybe he was always going to end up that way but it certainly doesn't help Uh, to suffer a head injury and have a leg that's never going to heal. So Anne fears at this point Henry can divorce her. She's miscarried this baby. Things don't look good. But what she doesn't consider is that he can do much, much worse to her. It all boils down to the fact that Henry wants to get rid of Anne. But he's not interested in another divorce. The first one took too long and it was an arduous process and he's getting more and more impatient. So as early as January 1536, he starts accusing Anne of witchcraft, although, and this suggests that he's looking for a far more expedient solution because as we just discussed, it's not a good idea to be accused of witchcraft and they'll burn you. So... I don't think he ever seriously considered that because this particular tactic gets abandoned almost as soon as it began. Um, But nevertheless, Anne's in pretty big danger. Also, as typically happens when Henry's looking to get rid of a wife, what does he got? What's he got going on on the side? He's got someone up on deck. (laughs) Exactly. So enter Jane Seymour. So Henry had been unfaithful to Anne throughout their entire marriage, but nothing... Nothing really stuck. However, by this time, he's got a new favorite, and she learned from the best. She learned from Anne's playbook. She's actually mm-hmm. one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, and she was she there. She paid though. attention. She did. So she also has support from every corner. So Chapuis likes her because she's Catholic. She has imperialist sympathies, which I take to mean she impor- supports the emperor. I, I read that, and I just threw it in there, but... I think the bigger issue is that she's Catholic and she most importantly supports the Lady Mary. So the hope is that she's going to mend the break with Rome and restore Mary to the the succession. So the emperor is on board with this. Henry wants peace with Charles and Charles makes it clear that if Anne's gone, this is possible. And Jane herself is actually advised by her family and friends to, to drop little hints of Anne's heresy and mention her lack of popularity in England and Henry's very receptive to all of this so Jane just plays it up and she plays her part extremely well she follows Anne's lead most importantly she refuses to be Henry's mistress and accepts nothing less than to be his wife and as we know of Henry the bait works and Henry begins to actively attempt to get rid of Anne so that he can marry Jane instead So what he does is he has Cromwell start making inquiries into Anne's behavior. So given the wealth of enemies she has, it's 
not difficult to find accusations. So in April of 1536, the musician Mark Smeaton is arrested, and he was just a musician that played in Anne's chambers. He later confesses to having an affair with her, but it's highly likely that he was racked before this confession and coerced. So racking is where they would literally put you on a wooden board, tie your arms and legs to a wheel or something and basically just turn the wheel and stretch and stretch and stretch your body until all your bones were dislocated and it was extremely painful and you could confess to whatever they wanted you to so it's, I think they racked him for like four hours or oh something. Oh, God. So yeah. that tells you it probably wasn't true. <laughs> Anne's favorites, Henry Norris, Sir Francis Weston, and William Brereton were also all arrested and accused of affairs with Anne. Also, we talked about this guy a little bit last time, but Sir Thomas Wyatt, he's also arrested, but he's later released, likely well, due to family connections. this is different. This is his son, right? Nope. Same guy. I I'm pretty sure. was Henry Wyatt was the poet. Thomas Wyatt. I thought Thomas Wyatt was Henry's son. Well, we will check into that. Yeah, that might be an oops, but I'm pretty sure Henry Wyatt is the one who initially years ago had pursued Anne, but I think. Oh, Thomas I always thought it was son. the same guy. I don't well, think so. Well, we will check on that. Either way, there's a guy named Thomas Wyatt who gets arrested, but he's later released because he has family connections. And so he's almost arrested as like a show. William Brereton was also released, but he's released for lack of evidence. So Cromwell's just rounding up the favorites in Anne's circle and trying to see what he can get to stick. And it's also kind of like a moral purge of the court. Like, all of these men were known to be, mm, like, not, I guess, kind of, like, scoundrelly, like, players. Like, they were really into, like, you know, the debaucheness of court. And so... They should have gone to France. Right, but they're easy targets, essentially. Yeah. and Anne was very close to all of them. So they're in her orbit. Cromwell can make it stick, so he goes after them. And then finally, interestingly, he arrests Anne's own brother, George Boleyn, for an affair with Anne. He's accused by his own wife. She gets hers. She does. But apparently... She hates Anne. She hates George. It was never a happy marriage. They never had any kids, which probably tells you in this time, they just probably hated each other. Um, And she hates him enough to accuse him of incest with his own sister. And I think it's, it's highly likely that none of this is true. So Anne, so all of these men are charged with a, with treason because they've touched the body of the queen. Anne's charged with adultery and, on top of that, all of them are charged with conspiracy to murder the king because Com- Cromwell said that all of them were going to murder Henry because Anne had all of these lovers in her spell. They were also, I don't know how seriously, but it was brought up that Anne perhaps might have ordered Catherine to be poisoned and then also was planning to do the same with the Lady Mary. And it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, we'll touch on that Um a little bit, but, well, we could talk about it now. So when Catherine died, she died of what they think was probably cancer of the heart, which is so, so poetic, I think. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't have known what that was. And this, the way that it probably looked would have looked really similar to certain kinds of poison. So yeah. there was a rumor when she died that 
Catherine had been poisoned, and Henry certainly convinced himself by the end that Anne had poisoned Catherine. Henry worked overtime to convince himself of all oh, of this. He really, really did. And it's, I mean, it's highly, highly unlikely that any of these charges had a basis in fact, but it didn't matter because once you're accused, it's only a matter of time and it's kind of like a kangaroo court. They're going to they're gonna find you guilty no matter what. Henry, as you just said, certainly convinced himself that it was true. Well, and the problem is that Anne's behavior, you know, as you mentioned, she wasn't she didn't have the graces and airs that Catherine had been brought up to have. And so Anne was indulgent of her ladies and she was into, you know, conversing and having fun with everyone at court. But her behavior also wasn't always seemly and also she wasn't nice to everyone. So she really didn't help herself out. Like it was too easy for a lot of people to believe all of this. It it really was. And, and unfortunately also... You have to, the reason why I brought up the church reforms is all of this is happening with the backdrop of the Reformation. So what we actually know about what happened is highly colored by this religious tension on both sides. So the Catholics Mm -hmm. would describe her as like the devil's wife. I mean, there's rumors that she had six fingers. There's rumors that she had like some weird like moles on her body maybe she did but the the reality is is that all of these quote-unquote physical deformities that she supposedly had first of all it's unlikely that henry would have been interested in her if she had them and also it's it's just it gives more credence to the fact that she was evil because you have to remember this is a time when a witch is you know maybe identified by having a mole on her forehead like it Mm -hmm. doesn't take much at this point and then and then on the other side the the lutherans the protestants they speak about her as if she was the most amazing person who ever walked the earth so it's really hard to know where the truth lies but i think everyone agrees that she had a lot of enemies and it was really easy to make all of this happen and i think what you're talking about is especially true in light of the next wife on deck you know it it from a certain angle does start to look like a power struggle between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, Protestantism isn't really a thing yet at this time, but the reformists versus the traditional conservative Catholics, they're really angling to have their person on the throne. Yeah, they really are. So everyone's accused. We've got a whole party going on here, and they're all taken to the tower. Um, while this is going on, Henry's already planning his next wedding to Jane, and they're all found guilty immediately. So while all of this is going on, interestingly, Henry's also working to have Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, he was a big player last week, annul his marriage to Now Anne. the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now the Archbishop of Canterbury, thank you. So Henry wants him to annul the marriage to Anne, which... It's kind of interesting if he's gonna if he's gonna get rid of her. It begs the question why annul the marriage, but it does have the benefit of making her child a bastard. So maybe that was the goal. I think that's the ultimate goal. Yeah. So they decide that this because is of the acts of done. succession. Remember exactly. So they decide that they could do this easily because Henry previously had a relationship with Mary Boleyn. And also cooperated. Uh, likely she was maybe promised an easier death or exile even. And she may have just been looking out for the comfort of her daughter. It's hard to know. In any case, all of the four men found guilty. That's Mark Smeaton, George Boleyn, Henry Norris, and Francis Weston. They're all beheaded by axe. 
and Anne quickly follows. So on May 19th, 1536, she's actually beheaded by a sword in the French fashion. Henry felt he was showing mercy by allowing her the cleaner death. And actually, from everything I've read, it it was a swift and painless death. Yeah, have you seen um, Wolf Hall? No, but I've read the book. So they do a really good job with this, I think. The swordsman is, he takes off his shoes and he says, you know, she won't feel anything. It'll be between heartbeats. And he kind of tiptoes around her and he shouts at her from one side. And then he swiftly moves to the other side while she's looking over there and just whoosh. Yeah. No, they blindfolded her and like she's like yeah. instantaneously beheaded. Yeah. Um, unlike Cromwell, they kind of botched his but. That happened a lot, actually. Yeah. So she's gone. She's dead. Problem solved. Henry immediately sets about erasing her presence from all of the palaces. He stamps out her badge wherever you might find it. And he, by all accounts, never spoke of her ever again. She's in his rearview mirror and he's not looking back. So this moves us on to wife number three. Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. <laughs> Jane Seymour. <laughs> <laughs> So Henry's Sorry, in love. I had with to do that once. <laughs> you had to. I mean, it's 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 just dangling out there like low hanging fruit. So Henry's in love with Jane, and he wants to marry her, but it's also again, once again, a matter of some urgency. So both of his daughters are now declared bastards, and his son, if we remember, Henry Fitzroy, his bastard by Elizabeth Blunt, who he had ennobled, he's dying. So he doesn't even have the backup plan left. So the succession has to be secured. And ironically, Jane and Henry, I am going to laugh when I say this, need a dispensation to get married because they're cousins. I think if nothing else from this series, we've established that the nobles and peers of 16th century England were all extremely interrelated. But the whole thing with Catherine is that this dispensation is not valid. Right, yeah. And here we go. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna need one of those. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting note. The hypocrisy just kills me. But Jane, just like his previous wives, she's a little older. So she's 25. And her virtue is already being celebrated. Um, her family had prepared her for the role of queen. Um, she also had a calmer temperament. She wasn't considered particularly beautiful, but it didn't matter. Henry liked that she was the opposite of Anne Boleyn. And so on May 30th, 1536, so we're only five months past Henry deciding he's going to get rid of Anne. Now it's May. Jane and Henry are married. And Jane Catherine's only queen. died like five months ago. Oh, lightning speed here this is why we're covering so many wives because we're we're talking about months not years It's it's a compressed timeline like you know he had to get his marriage to Anne pronounced you know null and void and that took essentially seven weeks whereas it took him seven years to do that with Catherine yeah I think uh Anne waited seven years Jane waited seven months ultimately when all was said and done because they were they were mm, dallying prior to January when he decided Anne had to go. So Jane becomes a new queen, and she's actually never formally crowned due to circumstances. First, he couldn't afford it right away. He he didn't really have any money in the treasury. And then, as we'll see, Jane just never really got 
that far. Immediately after the marriage, Henry starts hoping for his long-awaited son. And while while they're waiting, Jane decides, you know what, I'm going to be a really good queen and I'm going to start by mending fences with Henry's daughter, Mary. So she's Mary's champion and she encourages Henry to have good relations with her. She models herself after Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, which is an excellent idea since we know Henry did admire her. Henry's, unfortunately at this time, he's not an easy husband. He's got this leg that will never heal and He did not like his wife to disagree with him. So Henry, I think we've established, if anything, at this point, he's nothing if not predictable. So he follows a similar pattern. He loses a bit of interest as soon as he gets what he wants. But ultimately, people agree he did love Jane. He considered her to be his first truly lawful wife. And he later convinced himself that he loved her the most out of all of his wives and notable because he's buried next to Jane. That is where he chose as his final resting place. Yeah, but But, she's like also the one who like in his mind didn't do anything to him, right? She didn't do anything to him and she gave him the one thing he wanted and we will get there. I think I just want to get back to this idea of the nobles just kind of profiting off of this. Her family definitely benefited from her position. Her brother Edward is created Viscount Beecham of Hash in Somerset. Is that how you say that? I have Beecham? no. It's Beecham. I don't oh. know about. I don't know about Hash. It might be Hasha. I don't know. Uh, it is Beecham though. Viscount Beecham of Hash in Somerset, and he's also named Chancellor of the of North Wales and Lord Chamberlain to the King. Her brother Thomas, who we will see later was a gentleman of the privy chamber and her older brother Henry was knighted. So her father didn't really benefit, but he was pretty old and retired from court and so he didn't really want anything. Shortly after the marriage, there's a new act of succession which decrees that the crown will pass to Jane's children. It also confirms that Mary and Elizabeth are definitely bastards and also, I think this is interesting, grants Henry the power to appoint anyone to be his successor, including the issue of any other lawful wife. So he's already <laughs> planning for the next one, even though just at this in point, case. just in case, because he's very happy with Jane. Um, around this time, it helps that Mary also finally, finally swore her oath of allegiance, acknowledging Henry as head of the church. This Mary is a devoted Catholic, so this goes against everything she stood for. But it really was at this time a matter of life or death. He, he was ready to kill her if she wasn't going to do this. And Jane was a big part of bringing this about, and she's instrumental in wel- welcoming Mary back to court. So Jane took a really big interest in Mary. Um, Elizabeth not so much, but Mary advocates for Elizabeth, who's only three years old at this time. And um, even though she initially resented her, she's the closest thing to a child that Mary's ever going to have. So during Jane's reign, let's go back to this idea of religious conflict. It's still simmering all around England. And one of the biggest conflicts internally in England that you'll see during the reign of Henry VIII is this um uprising called the pilgrimage of grace and this starts with a riot over the religious reforms so i think it was they were closing down a monastery and the townspeople just kind of lost their minds um but eventually this swells to an army in the north and begins marching south on a crusade essentially intending to persuade henry to go back to the arms of rome and restore the monasteries 
Jane, a devout Catholic, tries to intervene on their behalf, but Henry makes it clear that she should not meddle lest she end up like Anne Boleyn. So he reminds her what happened to the last queen who tried to interfere in politics. Um, So Jane quickly backs off. In any case, the rebellion is quashed. Henry agrees to meet their demands, and he agrees to leave the monasteries alone, and he agrees he'll also crown Jane in York so she can be their Catholic queen. Um, Of course, this is Henry, so he doesn't mean any of this, and the peace doesn't last, and eventually he has to send the Duke of Norfolk with an army to crush the rebellion, and it's actually really doesn't look good on him with the people to be... Yeah, he's... Not negotiating in good faith because, again, this is Henry at his worst where he can do no wrong. So why should he negotiate with this uprising? Because they have no right to uprise because he, as the supreme leader of England in both king and head of the church, can't make a bad decision. Yeah, it's it's not good. And it's interesting because I don't think that Henry necessarily supports the reformists either. But no, the Catholics he just doesn't want anybody disagreeing with him. Exactly. So all of this is happening. But finally, we get the prince that was promised. Is that Game of Thrones? I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I thought I you think they were a, doing that on purpose. I think, think that I think is that's the, a Game of Thrones reference that I just organically threw in there. But uh, that's what we get. So by spring of 1537, Jane's pregnant. She went into labor in October of that year, and oh, this is terrible. She went into labor for three days. She <sighs> finally delivers a healthy baby boy. Woo-hoo! son Henry had been waiting for. He names the baby Edward, and the news quickly spreads. Everyone's thrilled. Um, Henry immediately sh- sets quite rigorous cleanliness standards for the nursery because no germs can reach this baby. They didn't, well, know, they germ- they didn't been know about germs back for- then, but they knew enough. Yeah, well, they should um, be looking for germs other places. Exactly, because unfortunately, Jane is not so lucky. So by the time the baby's christened, it's clear that Jane is suffering from purpural fever. How do you, sure. say, how do you say that? Yeah, Pur- purpural, purpural fever. Childbed fever, that's what it was called. Um, it's common illness that women would contract from childhood we've mentioned this a million times it was not a good gamble for women you get pregnant you got a 50 50 shot of surviving the birth um this is one of the many many ways that women would die in childbirth essentially i think you basically go septic from infection yep but on october 24th 1537 jane died her part in this whole story lasted a mere two years but she left quite a she legacy left an heir, so she, she left a prince she literally did the only thing that was required of her and she didn't need to live anymore oh god that's so sad to think of that way yeah um, but that's actually probably the way henry saw it yeah so the baby's healthy we've got a prince henry has no queen he's devastated obviously remember he did love her in his way and she gave him exactly what he wanted So he does take a little bit of time to mourn. But by 1540, he's ready for marriage number four. So after a year of negotiations, he's set to marry Anne of Cleves. And at this point, it's been a little over two years since Jane died. So this is kind of an interesting situation. So it's been a bit 
difficult to procure a bride, as you can imagine. Um, Given the fate of his last three wives, there aren't a lot of women in Europe willing to take the risk. Um, There's also the issue of the break with Rome, so the Catholics don't really want anything to do with him. And you've also got continually shifting allegiances in Europe. So he did go after a couple of women in France, and they kind of said thanks, but no thanks. He doesn't really have a ton of options. So after an exhaustive search and a few failed proposals, Cromwell, again, remember, Cromwell, big reformist. I mean, at this point, can we call him a Protestant? No, because that term hasn't been coined. It hasn't? Not at this point in history. Okay. Well, we're going to call him that for our argument's sake. Because... Call him a reformist. Okay, reformist. Fine. But they're using this term in Germany, if I'm not mistaken. No, they're... In Germany, they're Lutherans. Okay. Okay. Well. So Cromwell says, you know what, Henry... You should seek an alliance with one of these German princes because they're down with Lutheranism and this reformist idea of religion, what we would today call Protestant. So why don't we go make an alliance there? So they look at the Duke of Cleves who has two unmarried daughters. Cromwell, great idea. So Henry says, that's awesome, and we'll reward you for this idea. And he appoints Cromwell Lord Great Chamberlain. They send Hans Holbein, who's a painter at the court of Henry VIII, painted a lot of the famous imagery that you might associate with his reign, to paint these two daughters. And Henry is so taken with Anne's portrait that he decides he's going to marry her. So Cromwell also described her as being very beautiful. The hope here is that she'll further this reformist cause in England. This didn't happen, actually, for many, many reasons. But interestingly, when she died, she actually died a professed Catholic. So she wasn't, she was never going to be a big reformist. Um, Unfortunately, though, the other reason this didn't happen is that the marriage is doomed from the very beginning. So Anne, first of all, she didn't speak English, only high Dutch. She's not sophisticated. The manner of dress is just looked at as so backwards and unflattering. And so she's laughed at for her fashion. And Henry's just immediately unimpressed. He's not physically attracted to her. And he's pissed because he was attracted to her portrait. So clearly there's a disconnect. And he thinks, okay, the portrait was obviously overly flattering. He doesn't go and blame the artist. He immediately blames blames Cromwell for encouraging the match so he doesn't want to go through with it but there's no backing out he can't there's nothing he can do about it so he's got no allies left and he can't provoke the germans so he's got no choice henry and anne are married in january 1540 and henry declares at the time quote my lords if it were not to satisfy the world and my realm i would not do what i must do this day for any earthly thing tells you a lot about how he felt about that. Mm -hmm. In fact, he dislikes her so much that the marriage is never consummated and Henry immediately starts thinking about how to get this marriage annulled. Now, interestingly, as it happens, what did we say every time Henry's looking to get rid of a wife? What's the situation? He does not like to put one woman aside without having a backup plan. He's got a jump off in every situation. So he's already got another lady that he wants to make his fifth wife. And this is Catherine Howard. 
you might recognize her last name. She's the first cousin to Anne Boleyn. She had been, again, deliberately placed in Anne's household, Anne of Cleves, to catch Henry's eye. She's 15, which at the time, I guess, was marriageable age. And Henry's almost 50. The bait works, but Henry has to get rid of this German problem first. So he's so pissed at Cromwell. So he says, okay, you know what, Cromwell? I'm done with you. Just like Wolsey before him. Thomas Cromwell is arrested in June 1540, charged with treason and heresy. Henry blames him entirely for the whole Cleves affair and wants him gone. And so... Correct me if I'm gone, if I'm, sorry, if I'm wrong, but the treason charges were tied to, like, some kind of religious thing? Probably. I don't even think it matters. He just decided he wanted him gone, and at this point, if the king so much as looks at you sideways, your head's on the chopping block. Yeah. It's quite the rise and fall for Thomas Cromwell. Yes. And Henry's just a full-blown tyrant at this point. So after that, enter Cranmer again. The uh, annulment from Anne of Cleves comes pretty easily. Thomas Cranmer finds multiple reasons for it. First is that she may have been pre-contracted, we mentioned this last time, to the Marquess of Pont-Mousson, right? That sounds right. Um, The son of the Duke of Lorraine. It sounds French, which I am no authority on pronunciation of that. I I thought that other guy's last name was Beauchamp instead of Beecham. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Henry also claims correctly he didn't, well, I guess somewhat correctly, he he didn't consent to the marriage because he was protesting his way down the aisle. Or at least he's saying that he only married her grudgingly. Yeah. And then also it's not consummated. And the best part of all of this is Anne says, okay, she agrees. And she's rewarded for her cooperation with Lan's status as the king's sister and his lifelong friendship. She never returned to Cleves. She died as one of the richest women in England. And by all accounts, I think she got the better deal out of all these wives. I mean, she's an interesting case because it's a window into what Catherine might have had had she just agreed to divorce. But I think, again, Catherine's situation comes after 20 years of marriage. Right. But, Anne of Cleves is like, this man smells had, bad. His leg is rotting. Saying, had she agreed when Henry asked, he probably would have treated her similarly. Maybe. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, there's no kids of this marriage. So I think he can afford to be magnanimous. I don't know. I don't know that it would have been the same. By all accounts, the Duke of Cleves was kind of peeved, but Anne was treated so well, he didn't really have a leg to stand on. So... She's she's dispatched quite quickly. Problem solved. So now we have Catherine Howard, who had a poor girl. very short reign. Yeah, poor girl. She's not very bright, despite her pretenses at virtue. So she plays the same waiting game as Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour before Well, because at this point, it's well known. That's the oh. way to get the king to marry you. <laughs> I mean, they're coaching these girls. It's, it's kind of sick what's going on. But uh, despite her asking Henry to wait for marriage and I'm so virtuous. She's actually had multiple sexual relationships in her past despite her young age and many people knew about it. So her situation's kind of interesting. So she's, I, I, I know she's the first cousin of Anne Boleyn and I'm not, I think maybe their mothers were sisters if I, I think that's, that correctly. that's correct. Yeah. But she's raised by her great aunt 
the Dowager Duchess of something. Norfolk? No, that doesn't sound <laughs> no. right. I, I don't remember, but you're right. Anyway, she's raised by a woman who does not particularly take much interest in her upbringing, so she's allowed to run wild. So she's got, she's got quite a past, despite the fact that she's only 15. Again, she's not very smart. She employs at least one of her former lovers in her service. She might have been slightly blackmailed into that, though. She may have been, but she's also not old enough and smart enough to figure out how to get out of it. Yeah. In July of 1540, she and Henry are married, and the Howard family, once again in power, the most powerful noble family in the land, the religious conservatives were relishing the victory uh, and the end of this Protestant, for lack of a better word, alliance. In fact, Henry spent the rest of his reign very tough on English Protestants. Um, So the conservative nobles at this point have won that battle. They've got, even though still got Henry as the head of the Church of England, we're not rejoining Rome, everything's going to stay otherwise the same. Um, Henry also at this time takes the opportunity to get rid of the last of the stray Plantagenets that were floating around, uh, except for a gentleman named Reginald Pole. He's out of the country. He's in Rome. He's highly, highly critical of Henry and has been since the Anne Boleyn affair, but Henry can't really touch him because he's in Rome, and the Pope's been rewarding him for his loyalty. So I think eventually he did become a cardinal. Yeah, and you could argue that Henry going after the rest of the Plantagenets is him trying to get to Reginald Pole, who is out of his physical reach. Yeah. But he would very much like to have this man beheaded, but he can't, so he's going to, you know, kill his family instead. Yeah, and part of it, I think, is shoring up the succession, and part of Mm -hmm. it is just being a tyrant, as evidenced by the fact that he beheads the elderly Margaret Pole. Um, And it's actually kind of amazing that she lived this long, because Margaret Pole is the... Um, Countess of Salisbury by marriage, but her father is George, Duke of Clarence, brother of Edward the Fourth, and Richard the Third, and Richard the Third. So she had a pretty good claim on the throne. Her her little brother was the Earl of Warwick, who we talked about in our first part one episode. He was beheaded to make way for Catherine to come to England. Mm-hmm. So I guess they figured she's a woman. She's been married off. Who cares? But she has kids, and unfortunately, she's always kind of hanging out there in the ether as a little bit of a threat. So Henry decides now's the time to get rid of him. Catherine says not a word about any of this. She just plays the part of the dutiful wife. But unfortunately, it's not long before Thomas Cramner is made aware of her less than virtuous past. So he goes to the king immediately with what he's heard, and Henry orders him to investigate. So at the time, there's no evidence of present wrongdoing, but unfortunately, Cramner finds some. So Lady Rochford widow of George Boleyn. So we talked about her at the beginning of this episode. She accused her own husband of incest. Not a nice lady by all accounts. And um, I said she got hers. This oh, is how this she is does. How she gets it, yeah. So when they start investigating Catherine, they lock her up under lock and key. They don't put her in the tower, but they don't allow, she's basically under house arrest. A lady, is it Rochford or Rockford? 
I always thought it was Rochford. Okay, well, we'll call her Rochford because that's what I said first. She's locked up with Catherine while Cranmer is investigating, looking for evidence, and she freaks out. She, fearing the worst, she broke, and she admits to Cranmer that Catherine's been having an affair with a man named Thomas Culpepper, who is Catherine's cousin and a favorite of the king. So all of a sudden, Cranmer's like, oh boy, this isn't exactly what I thought I'd find, but whoa, some juicy gossip. So... And I think Lady Rochford thought that by tattling on Catherine, she'd save her own skin. But um, apparently she was quite complicit in this affair. She would arrange for them to be able to meet up. So she doesn't she doesn't get out of this alive. Another piece of evidence that came up is her supposed Catherine's supposed pre-contract with Francis Derham. Although so this was someone that she met when she was living with her aunt and Catherine had insisted that there was no pre-contract, which this goes to her age and um, naivety, because if there had been, her marriage to Henry could simply have been annulled. No harm, no foul. But she swears up and down that there was never a pre-contract, so they're accused of having a present-day affair, because he's the one that she hired as her secretary, and then he gets executed for treason along with Culpepper. Catherine follows just like her cousin before her, and she does not get the And sword. I think he actually is executed with the full style of a um, traitor, right? Oh. Like, he's, he's drawn and quartered. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. I think Culpepper was beheaded, but I think Durham got the full drawn oh, he, quarter, like... Because he wasn't nobility? Right, like, hanged, castrated, yeah, disemboweled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to explain it. Yeah, we've all seen Braveheart. It's fine. Ugh. So... That's another wife gone about as quickly as she showed up. So at this point... And I point, think an interesting parallel with Anne Boleyn is that, you know, Henry really tried to drum up charges against Anne, who maybe didn't have the temperament for being queen, but didn't really do anything wrong. And Henry right. tried his best to get her convicted of treason, whereas with Catherine Howard, he was very much into his young bride, besotted with her, and there was overwhelming evidence that she was guilty, and it took him a very long time to be convinced of it. <laughs> so he he wasn't quite as eager to send her to the block, but she wound up there anyway, and I once think he this, learned of her actual indiscretions. It's also his age. He's 50. Like, yeah. every 50-year-old man wants to believe that a beautiful 15-year-old <coughs> is in love with him. Exactly. So at this point, thanks for sticking with us, but Henry's, yes. <laughs> Henry has married and lost, abandoned, or beheaded five wives. He's getting on in years, and he still has only one son. Furthermore, the political health of England, both internally and externally, is not great. His alliances are in tatters, and no one wants to offer up another bride for him. Yeah, they're like, uh, you're just going to kill her or divorce her, so no thanks. Yep. Scotland, as always, is causing trouble to the north. Um, once again, England quickly puts down the Scottish army. Actually, James V dies shortly afterwards, leaving his infant daughter, Mary, as Queen of Scots. And I'm just leaving that little nugget there for later. And Henry actually wanted her for his son, Edward, although the Scots sent her off to France instead. So this is what I mean. He's got no friends. Um, and isn't that another marriage that is going to require a dispensation? Oh, they all do. They're all related. Situation's not looking great. At long last, however, Henry finds another bride. He's looking forward to another happy marriage. 
and she unfortunately is filled with dread at the prospect. As you would be. Yes. So join us next time for part four. We'll talk about Catherine Parr, the sixth and final wife, and the immediate aftermath of the reign of Henry VIII, as well as the legacy he left behind. Hopefully that one won't be as long as this one. Yeah. And at this point, I guess we should just also mention, you know, this is three more wives we've talked about and only one child to speak of. So it's not looking great. He's not that good at having babies. Rough times for babies back then. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But we will talk about what that means next time. All right. See you then. All right. Bye. MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.